Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R this morning. We've got an hour of science for you with some great guests coming up. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's been a while. It's been a long while, actually. Yeah, you um, took some time off. I did, I did. I was like, I was thinking this morning, I'd like to say that it's now got quieter so that I can come back, but it really hasn't because <laughs> we've got a puppy. <laughs> oh, you got a puppy? How foolish was that? What kind of, what kind of puppy? <laughs> He's a little cavoodle. He's very, very cute. A cavoodle. A cavoodle. Is that a real dog? It's... <laughs> He basically looks like a ball of fluff. My three-year-old dresses him in a tutu and puts him in a pram all day. So that is that type of dog. There are so many things in this conversation that sound wrong to me. They really do. He's beautiful. He's yeah. beautiful. Okay. Well, uh, that's good. Uh, enjoy your cavoodle. My cavoodle. I will. My cavoodling with my cavoodle. It's amazing what science is achieving. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure it's all good. Anyway, uh, in the studio with us now is Associate Professor Kate Nguyen, who is an innovative fire and facade engineer from the Innovative Fire and Facade Engineering Group at RMIT University and one of this year's Victorian tall poppies. Kate, welcome to Triple R. Good morning, Shane and Lauren. Thanks for having me this it's, morning on a Sunday. It's so great to have you in. Now, first of all, congratulations on uh, being one of the top poppy Thank finalists because we're, we're interviewing a few of you over the coming months. But I'm not sure if you knew this, but Lauren and I were tall poppies once upon a time oh, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we're just joking that we're like the old tall poppies that have like become, you know, fertilizer. Yeah, we, <laughs> we're sort of, you know, so old that they kind of died and went back into the earth and now have regrown as you exactly. guys, as, as a new set of tall poppies. But um, it was... Uh, yeah, I, I remember it. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, now, at RMIT, you're working on um, construction materials and so mm-hmm. forth that are fire resistant. So what? how do you define something as fire resistant? Is there a sort of set of parameters that it has to meet? Yeah, so for the fire resistant, it is kind of like a material, construction materials properties, mm. but it is also like um, the properties of the system. Let's say you have a wall, they also have their own fire resistant properties as well. So it is a multi-level mm. properties that let you know not only material, but in a system as well. Yeah, so this, of course, came to the fore in the, the really shocking disaster that happened in in England where that apartment building caught fire and presumably my understanding was that was very much the materials that were in use and how they were utilised in the building. Is that right? Well, you're right there. So it is um, about the material as well, like the mm. un- the full understandings on the material. Um, that's first, but then you put that material in a system because remember that building, it was uh, an old building mm. and it was renovated. So right. the material was put in a system as like part of the renovation. Mm. So it is about like how it will behave in that hybrid system. Yeah, interesting. And in terms of the, the fire parameters like what what sort of things do you need there like um is there a temperature above which it has to be safe like because i know there's some materials to me which seem you know when when i i I suppose i'm thinking you know 
years back they used to sell watches that were water resistant which to me was like if you went to the beach the watch for about two seconds would go <laughs> and then it would go i'm dead right? <laughs> that was water resistant those watches right what what does like what does it have to meet in terms of conditions for like how do you test it in the lab i suppose yeah so um that's interesting like when you compare it with the water but for the fire so we know that with the flame there are three components you mm-hmm. need all of them at once in order to have a flame so you need oxygen yep you need the heat and you need the fuel so when we are working on the materials we want to know like how it will interact with the uh, with oxygen at different temperatures so temperature is one component in there but Mm. it is like you know the three things that you have to look at them at the same time in order to have like you know the full understanding on how the material will let's say burn degrade or like will uh, spread or the fire will spread because of the materials right interesting so Kate just coming back to what you were saying about the problem with the UK fire being about you know adding new materials to an old building does that mean that every time a renovation is done you need to sort of look at what the materials were in the building look at the new ones do you have to run experiments every time or are there properties that you know will not match between the two well so when you have a renovation because there are kind of um, deemed to satisfy solution where like you know you test the material as part of different standards as referred to in the National Construction Code um, but um, then we also need to consider what is there before mm-hmm. and um, so my it is just my opinion it, it may be I'm right and maybe wrong but um, for that material when they put it in it looked really nice mm-hmm. however they didn't fully understand how it will burn yeah. Yeah. yeah, because um, normally for that kind of building, we will look into materials that is non-combustible. Mm. However, that material on the surface, it is metal. We all know that metal is non-combustible, but the hidden polymer core behind is a thing that yeah. combusts and interacts with many other things in the building. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and whenever I think of metal, I just think of heat conduction mm. being amazing, yeah. right? Mm. So this stuff, I mean, that's why we use fry pans, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that, so that must, that must be a big part of that problem is, that as soon as you have metals in the system, if you cannot contain that that heat distribution, things will spread very quickly. Um, that's that's right. But like you know, we need to consider how that metal is there. So mm. one thing it is good because it's on the surface, so it will contain the polymer material inside, right? And because it has very high. Um, heat conductive, so it, it acts as a heat sink, and that's what I observed right. in several tests, when let you know the heat will be dissipated very quickly, right. and initially it helps, but to a point where the heat is too much, too much. Mm. that doesn't work anymore. Yeah, mm. I, have th- I have this image of you in the lab with a blowtorch you know, just heating, <laughs> heating things up I mean, how, how do you test the material, like what does the experimental sort of apparatus look like for that testing in the laboratory? Yeah, so for the materials we have um, mainly here in Australia to test um, there can be more right but the mm. most um, uh, popular one that might being used is the non-combustible test where you have a furnace at 750 Celsius degree you put the material inside to see whether um, you have any flame or like the temperature will increase um, 
um, above a benchmark. Um, and then we have other tests like the cone colorometer test where you expose the material to a hot surface and you observe how much heat is um, uh, kind of emitted from the right. material. Uh, but that's material scale. Then here, because we have construction, right? Yeah. So we have larger, much larger scale where you can test the um, the elements, let's say a wall or a floor, and very often it is the fire resistance level test. If you are in the bushfire zone, then mm. there is another set of tests which which is relevant to bushfire. It's interesting. I, I, that's one of the things I was going to ask you about is, so you have this test model at 750 degrees Celsius, mm. which is, you know, that's damn hot, right? Mm-hmm. How does that compare to what uh, buildings experience in something like an Australian bushfire? Is that a comparable temperature or is that not close? I don't have a feel for that. Well, it is. Uh, in most of the residential fire, you have somewhere 600 to 800. Right. And um, the purpose of that test, that 750 degree mm. test, is to see whether you have combustible material in there. But then let you know, because you have the building, so you need to mm. test with the, let's say, the fire resistant level or the facade fire spread test, where it is more representative of the fuel loads you will have in the building. Right, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it is... Like it's a complex know. system, yeah. It's a, right. I, I often, yeah, I suppose that idea of you know, does this burn? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not just that. It's going to be going to be the whole system um, yeah. altogether. Uh, so, Kate, I'm really interested. I, I'm assuming. I mean, I make a bit of a generalisation here, but I'm assuming there's not a lot of women that are working in sort of this construction industry research space. Yeah. So, what what made you get involved in this? And and you know, how how do you think that we can support more women to get involved in this space? Yeah, I think like you know, to have more attentions from um, the community and getting more brilliant girls and women mm-hmm. into construction and especially the academia in, in civil engineering is really my passion. Um, I, well, with with me, I think I have some kind of engineering mindset from very early days. My mm. father was an engineer, so oh, I like to know I got some experience. <laughs> I was lucky, um, but um, then like um, along the time when working in this, um, of course, like there are not many girls around. Yeah. Um, but um, you will see in the construction there are a lot of different professions that mm. you will be working with. So it is mm. it is exciting. Like you know, you work with architects where they have a yeah. very different different um, way that they look at buildings yep, yep. And, and then you have other engineers electrical mechanical engineers so the the the, the workplace is very dynamic and mm-hmm. let you know you have the chance to be innovative in there mm-hmm. so um, I think that was um, kind of the motivation for me and um, I do hope like if we can convey the message better about like what would the environment look like when you work in the construction like you know in the industry um, as well as the academia then perhaps like we give a fuller um uh, like picture to mm. young girls so they can make their decision uh, an informed decision about their lifetime career yeah no, it, i mean it sounds super interesting what what area of engineering was your dad involved in so he was a materials engineer oh, he was a materials engineer as well yeah, right. <laughs> i was yeah. hoping you say aeronautical engineer but you know, <laughs> i didn't want to do that dad um, <laughs> yeah that's that's super cool because you must have a, like there must have been an intense sort of maths mindset at home, you know, and that's one of the things when, when we see a lot of women coming through school, you know, they're kind of put off by the way maths is taught. Mm. And you, you would have been embedded in that. 
Wow, and, but uh, it was funny because initially my father didn't want me to be an engineer because, like, being there, he just thought that it, it would yeah, be yeah. difficult for yeah, me yeah, because not many girls around. Um, but um, in the end, when he saw that, okay, I'm determined, then he fully supported me. And yeah. that way, I'm lucky, as you said. Yeah, no, that's great stuff. That's a great story. Um, now, you in particular uh, are working on sustainable um, fire-resistant materials. So what does that look like at the moment? Because I, I think, you know, there's a lot of sustainable materials that are, you know, difficult to construct in general, mm. but making them good enough for construction and making them fire-resistant is a next-level next difficult, right? That's right. Um, because, it, as you know, with the construction industry generally compared to other industries, they are a bit more conservative. Mm. So a small change is difficult yep. to be implemented. So um, the the thing is we need to be robust in the assessment when we have like a new material or a new method of construction mm. to make sure that like, you know, it is fully tested, it is fully understand so that it will have like 50 or 100 years um, being there in a building. Mm. Yep, yep. And so what are we doing in Victoria? So in Victoria, we are having... Well, maybe not Victoria in general, um, but uh, like for the research group that um, I'm working in RMIT over there, there are many exciting projects we're working on to kind of bring sustainability and fire safety together. Um, for example, we have a project, we are starting a project with Brickworks, and that is on, let you know, to develop a new type of mortar so that you when, when you demolish bricks, then you can reuse it you know, with oh, a better rate. Yeah, and um, like you know, with um, Australia in general at the moment, about a third of the waste is from building, right. construction, and, and demolition. So mm. that is a high number, and yeah. we really want to increase the um, recycling, upcycling rates of um, construction materials. Yeah, that's great to hear. I, I know, like in especially areas like the con- concrete sort of manufacturing areas and so forth, every now and then you go there into a park and you see a. You know, you see a bench, and it's like this bench was made out of previously recycled printer cartridges. I'm like, it's one bench. You know, there's whole buildings we're talking about here mm-hmm. that you know have just immense amounts of materials, which presumably would be reusable. But it's great to hear that some of that work is going on. Kate, it's been an absolute delight having you in the studio, and good to hear that uh, you're you know pushing this idea of more and more women in in the construction industry, in, in particular in material science and so forth, because. There's so much great stuff to do there, and such as you say, it's such a diverse and interesting environment when you're working with so many different um, sort of fields and skill sets. So, thanks so much for coming into Einstein and Gogo. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, folks. We're going to take a break for some music, and when we come back, we'll have another tall poppy in the studio in a very different topic area. So, uh, hang in there. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. I'm here with Dr. Lauren. I am still here. Still, I'm still, still awake. Around? Yeah, still awake. <laughs> what the hell. <laughs> So, well, of course I am. It's Einstein and Gogo. It's the most exciting show of the week. Uh, our, guest, our second guest is sitting there going, what is going on? 
Our second guest is Dr. Adam Colvener from La Trobe University. Adam, welcome to the studio. Thank you, guys, and hopefully I can keep you awake <laughs> during the next 10 minutes or so. But it's apt I'm here talking about, which we'll talk about knees, when thousands of people are probably just finishing the Melbourne Marathon this morning. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. That's right. Probably wobbling around with their sore knees after um, a big effort. So it's a good day to be here in the studio talking to you guys about knees. Yeah. Knees are damn complex, aren't they? I mean, we underestimate the, the, the structure, you know. I like to think they're complex because I have lots of research questions to, uh, to discover. So, um, yes, they keep us mobile and um, up on our feet and um, they can be injured and damaged and yeah. get osteoarthritis in later life, which um, I study a lot of yeah, injuries to osteoarthritis across the lifespan. Yeah, so, that's, so when we talk about injuries to the knee, because there's, there's the cartilage, there's the bone, there's a whole of the tendons attaching the muscles, there's a whole lot of stuff in there. What, what are the sort of common injuries that people get? depends what age you are and what sport you participate in but if you're young and active and playing a lot of um, popular sports in Australia such Mm. as basketball football soccer it's the ACL so the anterior cruciate ligament uh, which I have a special interest in but also uh, meniscus tears which is the little spongy tissue that sort of pads the the, the knee Um, they're the main two traumatic injuries but there's obviously a lot of other pain that people can get that don't result from a a specific acute injury for example and as you get older it's typically um more chronic pain and osteoarthritis um, into later years so with the acl just describe to me what's happening there is that is that the ligament that attaches the muscle to the knee itself has it yeah so it's a ligament which means it attaches bone to bone bone to bone so it's the your femur which is your thigh bone um the ligament sits deep within the knee and attaches the thigh bone essentially with the tibia which is your shin bone so you've got Two cruciate ligaments, your anterior cruciate ligament and your posterior cruciate right. ligament. And cruciate means cross. Yep. So they cross in the middle of the knee. Anterior um, cruciate helps to stabilise the forward movement of the tibia and the posterior cruciate helps to stabilise the posterior movement, so the backward movement of right. the tibia. And what sort of injuries do you get to that ligament? Like what, what, what does a typical injury look like? Yeah, so most of the time it's a complete rupture. So oh, a complete so a tear. tear. So exactly. A tear, right. Occasionally yep. you can get a partial rupture because there are actually two bundles within the yep. ACL natively. Um, but more often than not, it's actually a complete tear of both of those bundles. Yeah, right. I, sometimes I, I think, you know, people talk about breaks, but like to me, ligament pain is full on. You know, I, I, I've got a, you know, I'm going to share here, but I've got a slight ligament issue in my right wrist at the mm-hmm. moment caused by a hammer drill. You know, excessive use of a hammer drill one day when I was thinking I was 22 doing some work around the house, <laughs> realised uh, not so young anymore. And But, you know, it's taking months to heal. Like, it's it's really problematic. Yeah, and, and ACL is painful. really interesting because people who tear it acutely on the football field, they'll yep. say they have really intense immediate pain. Yep. But often then afterwards they come off and go, actually, my knee's not too bad. I feel like I can come back <laughs> right. on. Because you're tearing, when you have a complete rupture, yeah. you're actually tearing all the nerve fibres with right. the ligament as well. So there's no messages getting through. Yeah, yeah. And it's not only until they go back to sport they try to pivot or jump or uh, land really quickly that their knee gives way yeah that's clearly something now now, adam a lot of your work is around looking at the sort of longer term impacts of this and because it's one of the things that you know you hear about a lot where people end up with ongoing knee pain so do, do you have a fair idea of what the cause of that pain is it's a great question and we don't exactly um in Australia, we actually have the unfortunate title of being the ACL capital of the world, particularly yeah. in Melbourne, because we play a lot of football and whatnot. Yeah. So it's a really common injury down under. Um, most people will, um, in Australia, have surgery to reconstruct their ACL at the moment. Yep. Um, so some of my research looks at actually is that 
really necessary. We know that from right. trials from around the world that compare surgery to not having surgery with rehabilitation alone, people do just as well with the rehabilitation alone years down the track mm-hmm. without having right. actually having the surgical reconstruction. The development of pain longer term is quite complex as well. So we know that once you have an ACL injury, irrespective of whether you have surgery or not, you're much higher risk of getting osteoarthritis in your knee much mm. earlier. So say about 50% of people within 5 to 10 years of having an ACL injury will get osteoarthritis. 50%? 50%. Because wow. whenever I hear medical uh, information where they say, you know, your chance of is higher, and I look at it and it's like 0.1%, and I'm like, yeah, eh, I'm mm. drinking coffee anyway, suck it. <laughs> um, but 50%, that is, yep. as That's I remarkable. say, almost everyone. Yeah, you know? one in two. Yep. Yeah, one in so, two. Um, that can, that's something that I look at uh, a lot myself and it's how can we, well, firstly, prevent the injury from happening in the first yeah. place. That's yeah, the, the lowest hanging fruit and we're doing some work at La Trobe University on that as well. But once people have the injury, what can we do to try and either slow the progress to osteoarthritis or try and prevent it in mm. the first place? So we look mm. at what are some of the risk factors that put these people on the trajectory towards osteoarthritis so yep. quickly and what can we do about it? Yeah, interesting. Just taking a step back, um, the surgery itself, what do they do? So if the ligament has completely ruptured, is that as simple as sewing the ligament back up together or is it more complex? Do you have to worry about the nerves and what, how you manage yeah, that? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's changed over years gone past as new techniques come about so previously they used to sew it up but then they found that when people go back to sport they often re-rupture because the Mm. sewing isn't strong enough so what they tend to do now is actually reconstruct the acl which Mm. means taking a bit of tissue typically either from your hamstring so a hamstring tendon or often the patella tendon which is at the front of the knee in Melbourne now, they're doing a bit more quadriceps tendon, which is at the very bottom of your quadriceps, so just above the kneecap. So take a little bit of that tissue, take it out, shape it into a nice-looking ACL, new ligament, and insert it back into the knee. So that tendon then becomes a ligament. And the body is fascinating that over periods of time when you look at the cells, the tendon that was the hamstring, when it's inserted as a ligament, it changes its behaviour right. to, to work like a ligament. Yeah, and even at the wild. cellular level, it becomes a ligament. It's just crazy. Yeah, that's wild yeah. stuff, isn't it? I mean, whenever I hear about that, I think our bodies are, you know, they're designed for repair. They really are. They, I mean, uh, that being said, you know, so many things go wrong once we go beyond a certain age because in an evolutionary sense, of course, we're not breathing at that point, so there's no advantages. Mm. But they're so good at, we're so good at repairing. I mean, for me, stem cells are everywhere, you know, yeah. <laughs> stuff happening. Adam, in terms of the the imaging, because you have so much more access these days to dynamic, high-resolution imaging, I mean, what sort of things do you do there in terms of knees? Because to me, you know, you can see these things in real time, you can monitor people's pain. What does that look like? Yeah, so there's actually some... Typical MRI machines now um, mm. can see, they bring up lots of different colours under the rainbow and yeah. make things shine up in different ways. But there's actually MRIs, um, specific research ones, where you actually can stand up in the machine and move during yeah. the image taking place, yeah. which is just crazy. So we can then work out which part of the cartilage, for example, is you, are you loading, which might then relate to where are you feeling pain, mm. but also... If your biomechanics change, which we know they do after an ACL injury, is the part that's at risk of osteoarthritis, is that where you're loading? So maybe parts of the knee that aren't used to load are actually getting loading because you've changed the biomechanics mm-hmm. and now we can see that in the MRI from the cartilage right. damage that we're seeing, but also how you're, you're biomechanically moving. Do, do you find, so you, when, when you start talking about loading, I start to think about this, do you find there are a lot of people who end up with pain in the other knee because of the way they're 
redistributing their mass and their loading and their walking? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. It's probably something to do with the brain as well, with how you perceive pain. Mm. And I'm not an expert in all those pain mechanisms and science. But um, certainly in the initial stages of injury, you obviously offload that knee because yep. it's painful. So mm. you're going to put more weight on the other knee. And often people will say, oh, I've had an old grumpy hip there that's just flared up because I've been right. putting a lot more weight on that side. Mm. Um, but part of a physiotherapist's role, which is my profession, during rehabilitation is actually trying to make that symmetry come back. So you're mm. actually loading symmetrical so we can actually reduce the risk of going back to sport and having another re-injury yeah. to yeah. either knee. So for these one in two people that do end up with osteoarthritis after an injury like that, what, what is the management? What do you then do to help them with their pain? So it can be quite unique because typical osteoarthritis patients are often older. So mm. in their 70s and 80s, you're probably picturing, you know, grandmother, grandfather walking around with a, a walking frame. But these people are still in their 30s and 40s yeah. because they've had an ACL injury in their adolescence or in their 20s. So it's a very different looking type of patient. They might have career aspirations. They're still looking after their kids. Mm. And so it's a real challenge for us because they want to be active still. Mm. Um, so we know quite a lot of evidence um, in the field of how we should be treating older people with osteoarthritis. So typically exercise therapy, so strengthening muscles that are weak. If you are overweight, trying to lose that weight because every kilogram you are overweight puts more load through the knee. And so those same principles apply to the younger population, but we're actually looking at more developing more specific paradigms for younger people at Latrobe at the moment. We're involved in a couple of clinical trials looking at um, what might be different about young people because we know that the, the risk factors are slightly different if you have an injury mm. and put yourself at risk of osteoarthritis compared to older people who have just developed over their lifetime um, mm. the osteoarthritis and pain. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, the one thing I've noticed as I've gotten older is uh, the recovery from injury time changes. And I think, you know, when, when you're young, you, you have this sort of expectation you recover fairly mm. fast. So it must be like incredibly challenging for some of these people who are coming through at age 30 and have what seems like a lifelong pain condition at that point. Yeah, and we try not to frame it so in a negative light, but mm. these people are active and healthy yep. playing football with their friends before they have this really devastating injury that mm. happens in an instant. Yep. And so it's not only a physical condition, but often a mental challenge yep. those mm -hmm. people often have a fear of re-injuring the knee because it happens yep. so innocuously mm -hmm. that's really common um, but also if you take people young people particularly who away from their sport which they might derive a lot of social pleasure and, and friendship it can actually be really mentally challenging as well it's a long period of rehabilitation yep. initially just to get back to sport but we're thinking now you probably need you're going to have this knee for life it's not really going to be exactly the same so what can we do to you know, ensure the longer term health of this knee as well so it's probably an ongoing maintenance thing rather yeah. than just a quick rehab get back to sport and you're done um because there is it. that yeah yeah now adam before we let you go we're going to talk about uh you because you're recruiting uh people in and first question is will they get to be in this stand-up mri we don't have one at Latrobe oh. at the moment, but <laughs> if people keep coming and saying they want to, then maybe we can, you know, try and get that funding too. But we do have we some of our, our studies. You do get a free MRI, so we look at your yep. knee, and we're really interested in looking at the structure, so the cartilage and the bone and the meniscus, like we talked about earlier, and see if that changes over time. So we're looking right. at a study um, longitudinally: um, who develops osteoarthritis, why do they do it, what are the risk factors, and how can we help them? So we're looking at a couple of different treatments as well, which are free as part of the clinical trial. So if anyone listening has an ACL injury or know of someone with an ACL injury, um, we have uh, looking for people who participate in research. So knee study at Latrobe, 
www.edu.au is our email address or you can Google my name and Latrobe and my email address will be findable and shoot me a message. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, that sounds great because I, I, I suspect anyone who has had one of these injuries and hears 50%. I'd be like, I need to get into whatever study I can get into just in case, you know, minimise the possibility of this becoming an ongoing problem. And, and you know, Lauren knows well, but, you know, my, my favourite healthcare professionals are physiotherapists, right. closely followed by optometrists. Very, um, closely, very, very closely, very closely. Well, not that closely, but reasonably <laughs> closely. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. And part of the thing is because, you know, both of you, you guys get to spend so much time with patients, which is a big part of the patient interaction. We've seen the downsides of that in GP clinics and so forth, where when you reduce time, it becomes a lot harder to give adequate care. So, you know, physios still, thankfully, have a lot of time. Yep. And it's often just listening to people's stories because they want to get it off their chest from the mental load, the confidence, the physical stuff, and then actually just guiding them through how to um, do what they want to do. Yeah. The one thing I've always loved about any physiotherapy interaction I've had is always the to get you back to full, you know, it's always getting you back to the things you want to do. It's not, oh, look, you're screwed now, but here's a bit of, here's some Panadol. Yeah. You know, it's like always about getting you back to doing the things you love, which I think is, as you say, the emotional elements of that, especially for young people, is extraordinarily powerful and, yeah. and valuable. So, well, uh, if, if you're Vice Chancellor John Durer, he listens to the show. He's been on the show. If he's listening, John, you're leaving at the end of the year, I think, yep. as I recall. A stand-up MRI is a must for Adam's work. A legacy. A legacy <laughs> item. You could put your name on it, the Dua MRI system. Yep. Uh, but that would, be a, that would be a great thing to have out there at Latrobe because you guys are doing some really interesting things in physio. So, Adam, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us on Einstein and Gogo. And congratulations on the Tall Poppy uh, Award. Yep, thank uh, you. It was great... amazing to be awarded the other night when there was 10 or 13 of us. Very yeah. incredible researchers across a whole wide, wide variety of spectrums of research. So it was yeah. people doing amazing things. Have they got you? locked in to go and talk to some schools or yeah i think i got uh, cornered by a couple of people to look as i said acls knee injuries really you know motivating for kids to hear about so looking forward to doing that over the yeah, next 12 months it's a lot of fun and you get you get tested at schools mm-hmm. you do i remember when i was a top poppy and i went to one school and there was this one kid i was talking about science you know of space travel and this one kid said, put his hand up and he said i saw this documentary and all the all the moon landings were fake and I was up the front thinking, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> and turned the slide projector off, and that's all we talked about for the next hour. It was yeah. great. Uh, but kids, are, you know, they, they can be cruel. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, be ready. Be ready. Great. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. No problem at all. Folks, uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, Dr. Lauren and I are going to do some news and stories for you, which will be pretty cool as well. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. Welcome back, folks. You are listening to Triple R. Dr. Lauren, it's time we did some news. First of all, news is you're back. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, like, that's, you haven't been here most of the year. We can talk about that for the rest of the show if you like. <laughs> Be I've back my, for good as it's a one-off favour for me. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I've, I've very much be, miss being here. It's just been a bit of a chaotic year. But, yeah, um, yeah no, good to be back. Really yeah, good to be back. Yeah, I think it's, a, you know, one of the things that we, we take very seriously on the show is that people do, our, our hosts have other lives. Mm. And on occasion, that means taking a break. Absolutely. And it also always means not pressuring them to return quickly especially you know some of many of our co-hosts have, co-hosts have had kids yep and you know at their workplaces there's this oh you've been back three six months you've got to come back to work whereas here it's like come back when you're ready absolutely um, and it does it's something yeah i'm gonna get a bit soppy now but oh. it is it's a lovely family and and all our listeners and yeah. yeah so it's really lovely to be back yeah, and so. the other thing that's great being back is it gave me an excuse to go down the rabbit warren of reading news stories this oh, week yeah. which i haven't <laughs> i've been pretty restrained from doing oh, for that's a few good. months yeah. <laughs> but um yeah. 
it's actually very relevant to what we were just talking about, actually, is um, stem cells. So, you know, we were talking about how important stem cells are for health and the yep. knee and things like that. Um, and I was reading a paper this week that uh, was published in Nature looking at the fact that they've actually found a new type of stem cell now in the vertebrae. And this was really interesting. The reason that they came up with this is that they know that with breast cancer and a lot of other cancers, unfortunately, they often metastasize to bones. And that actually happens in about 70% of people that have breast cancer, which is a shockingly high number. Um, And usually it goes to spine. And so these scientists were sort of interested in why that was the case. And so what they did is they actually uh, used a mouse model and they took stem cells from within the vertebrae and then also stem cells from within other the bones, so from mm-hmm. within your arm and your leg bones, yep. they implanted them into a mouse, into its legs, so one one in each leg. And what they did is that actually then formed these new organoids. So it formed basically a little mini spine in one of the mouse's legs wow. and a little mini arm in the other mouse. Wow. Amazing. So this is within the mouse, not not jutting out. I'm, I'm sure I can see right. that you're yeah, thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> I remember that ear on the back of the rat thing. It didn't go down well. Oh, no, no. Yeah. So, so within the body of the mouse okay. itself. But the really cool thing is when they injected breast cancer cells into this mouse, what they found is most of the breast cancer cells went towards that fake spine, the, the newly grown spa- spine. Is that right? That's, yeah. Geez, that's interesting. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So then they went, okay, well, why is this? And they've realized that it's actually a different type of stem cell in the spine to what there are in other bones. And it part of the thing that really struck me with this is yeah. we are still learning so much about the body. Yeah. Like it's quite amazing that we didn't realise this already. Yeah. Um, but this is really important information, obviously, because we know now why cancer tends to metastasize more to the spine. Right. And it also opens up opportunities for new treatments. You know, mm. So if we know why it's happening, it means that we can start to understand how to stop it as well. Yeah. Wow. It's some of the most basic biology stuff, isn't it, though, when you think about it, you know, the fact that those cells in that bone are different to this bone. Yeah, and absolutely. You wouldn't guess it necessarily. but That's it. And then one of the other fascinating things that um, I was reading, so I was like, well, what did we think before? Like, what was the reasoning that we thought it happened? And there was actually a, an inter- interview with a doctor that was interviewed for mm. an article around this story. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, he was trained um, that if people coughed, if they had breast cancer and they coughed, it was more likely that the cancer cells would go to their spine than to, say, their arms or legs. Whoa. Isn't that insane? So that was the hypothesis that came up in the 1940s. And until recently, that was actually still taught in some places that, you know, coughing was enough to direct cancer cells around your body. And now understanding, obviously, stem cells makes a lot more sense. Yeah. That it's attracting the cancer cells and that's, you know, without um, that person's you know, Jeez. coughing fit, having anything to do with it. Weird stuff. Yeah, amazing mm. stuff. Well, look, I'll tell you, there's some other news that's come out the last couple of weeks and there's so much going on at the moment. First, no, the geez. first thing I wanted to mention, which I know is going to, this is going to piss you off, Dr. Lauren, but um, over the last week, there's been, the Biodiversity Council has been reporting on this, um, what's called the Living Wonders Court Judgment mm. um, with regards to the sort of information that the government, you know, needs to address before approving new coal mines or, mm-hmm. you know, fracking sites and so forth and look you know the the federal government essentially has won this uh, legal battle and so it means that minister plibersek now can essentially you know approve these things without taking into consideration the environmental impacts mm. of them which look i don't know the legal intricacies of this but it sounds pretty damn bad i mean it, it seems though we've already been doing some pretty nasty things over the last year or so but um 
in terms of what this means, um, it's you know it means that there's a clearer path for you know approving these things than yeah. there, there really should be. And I think um, you know it's interesting. The Biodiversity Council, if you don't know, is made up of eleven Australian universities, and it sort of draws on a range of experts um, in terms of you know um, biodiversity, mm-hmm. of course, and indigenous knowledge, and all all things um, important like that. But the the bit that I found amazing was the statement put out where it basically says that the minister currently dismisses the impacts of further emissions from Australia's coal and gas on two grounds. Mm. And this is what I I read this and it was like something straight out of the um, big coal industry playbook. Absolutely. Um, Number one was um, if we don't sell the coal, someone else will. Yeah. Yeah, that's a strong argument. Yeah. And the second is um, emissions from one um, new coal mine are just a drop in the ocean compared to the global emissions. It's just heartbreaking. It really is. And I read those two things and I think, sorry, what year? What year is it? Yeah. Um, Because that to me was just quite astounding that, you know, it's that whole someone else's problem. I'm not a big part of the problem. So, you know, let's just worry about those other people. Um, But ignore me. And we we know that per capita Australia's greenhouse gas emissions are shockingly bad. So, you know, I think this is one of those situations where legally um, they have won this, Mm. but morally a massive loss Absolutely. a massive loss so i was really disheartened to see that and i know many involved in the biodiversity council um would have been as well because this is mm. certainly not the sort of leadership that we want to see in this country especially given some of the weather events and that that we've been seeing around the northern hemisphere of late mm. that are you know on our doorstep coming mm. into summer as well so Absolutely. you know look out, but i you know every time i hear news like that i always you know it just makes me wonder if they've been to the sites like could you go and stand on a site and then say, you know, that the, the, the fauna and the animals around you are, and the, the plants are not important enough to protect. You know, yeah. it just, it's just, it's really quite mind boggling that the environment doesn't need to be considered in these decisions. Yeah, it's, uh, well, you know, it's a lot about money, isn't it? So, yeah. anyway, but some, some good news because uh, I know people are having a rough, a lot of people are having a rough weekend. It's, it's, it's pretty, yeah. pretty rough. Um, the uh, the sample return we spoke about a few weeks back that from the Bennu asteroid that NASA um, did with collaborators, uh, you know they grabbed a they essentially grabbed a piece of this asteroid and brought it back yep. and dropped it off yep. and that craft the Osiris Rex craft is heading off now to another site but yep. dropped off a little pellet you know um, which landed in the US and this week they opened it up. And uh, to see what was inside, because they didn't even know exactly how much material and so forth was in there. And I saw this great picture, actually, which was very funny, where someone had taken a picture of uh, Michael Crichton's novel, The Andromeda Strain, and and put that in the sample... That's and good. it's like that's what for for those of us who are a little bit older, we remember this this film where you know deadly virus came from from outer space. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was back, I think, it was in the seventies, might have been early. <laughs> um, very famous Michael Crichton novel. Um, but no, they they found a, a small amount of material, you know, that they collected, and they've already done a sort of very preliminary analysis. But it seems to have a lot more. Um, carbon uh, in it than they expected yeah. and, and water. So, you know, this is this whole thing of, you know, it, it probably started out there, you know, and this this asteroid is older, a bit older than than the Earth, of course, yeah. Um, yeah. because it was it was in the solar system before the formation of the Earth. So, yeah. So that's kind of cool. They opened it up this week. And also this week there was a successful launch of the uh, mission to Psyche, as it's called, mm-hmm. um, and this is where another craft is actually being sent to a metal-rich 
um, asteroid, yep. which is um, in in between Jupiter and Mars. So so the Bennu asteroid is really close to Earth. It's kind of shared our orbit in a way. Yep. Um, but this one's much further yeah. out. So they successfully launched uh, that, I think it was Friday. It was late this week. It was put off for a couple of days yep. due to the bad weather. But um, <laughs> finally, finally got launched and um, heading out to grab some more stuff. So Amazing. there's a lot going on at the moment. So how long will that one take if it has to go all that way? Uh, a little bit longer, but yeah. um, it's not it's not that far. Yeah, like okay. it's it's not too bad. But I think it's a oh, you've got me now. I think it's a couple of years. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but the you know the next one, which is the one I'm really excited about, yeah. which is not to go and get um, rocks, but it's called the Europa Clipper, yeah. and that's a mission to go and look at um, Jupiter's moon Europa, which we very firmly understand has a subsurface ocean and so forth. And, yeah. And. You know, it's look. It's my second favorite moon. Yeah. You know, we'll and, and our moon is not even in the top five. Ah, um, I feel a bit yeah. sad for our yeah, moon. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's not too bad. But uh, my favorite moon, uh, yeah. moon is Enceladus from Saturn because um, when you look at that, you can see it's sort of it's leaking. Yeah. Um, and so you can look at what's leaking out of it. Um, and this is what the James Webb Telescope has done. Yeah. And they can see all these various materials and and potential for life there. And they found phosphorus and everything. All the all the all the components you need are all there. Amazing. So yeah. it would be super cool if one day we manage to go and explore that and say, hey, you know what, there's remnants of life or there's currently life. Um, I'm not talking about, you know, people walking around, (laughs) um, but, you know, bacterial sort of life or or something very simple amoebas would be super cool to work out that um, we weren't the only location. Exactly, exactly. Amazing stuff. So lots of stuff happening there uh, at the moment in terms of space exploration, but uh, mm. yeah, cool stuff. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a break and then we're going to. What do you What do you tell us about today? I'm going to talk about nanobodies today. Oh, yeah. right, small yeah. stuff, small more, stuff, small stuff indeed. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Welcome back, folks. We've got about nine minutes left to buy in Go, Dr. Lauren, over to you. Thank you very much. Uh, so I got really interesting. I was talking before about going down the rabbit hole of reading about science. Mm. So I did this this week because it was World Sight Day on Thursday. And we did a um, public lecture at the State Library on eyes and vision restoration and gene therapy and things like that. And I actually got a question ahead of time from someone, uh, which I didn't get a chance to talk about on the night. So if Joanne's listening, apologies. Um, But you absolutely sparked my interest. So she emailed me ahead of time and said, oh, have you heard about this new treatment for eye disease called a nanobody? And I was like, I'd heard the term, but I didn't really know much about them. So I got into an absolute reading spiral and they are absolutely fascinating. So we know about antibodies. So Mm. antibodies are proteins which help our body fight infection. So they um, are produced by our immune system. They're also known as immunoglobulins and they are fantastic, right? So I knew about yeah. antibodies, but nanobodies, you know, from the name, as we joked about before, we knew that only they were small. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, okay, they're, they're little antibodies. You're so smart. <laughs> I know, totally, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, so what they actually are is that they are, they're, they're smaller antibodies than normal and they're actually sort of fragments of, of antibodies, but they're only found in certain species. And this is where it right. starts to get really interesting. So they're found in sharks Camels and llamas and alpacas. That's it. Interesting. Really interesting. I and wouldn't have put sharks with the alpacas. I know, yeah. I know, absolutely. And so the reason is that they're both quite old animals in terms of evolution yep. lineage. Yep. 
And so one of the really interesting things is sharks are quite complex with their immune systems because they have a lot of urea in their blood. And so standard antibodies would actually just get broken down by that urea. So they needed something a little bit more clever. And so the way that nanobodies work is they're kind of a simpler form than an antibody. So they're smaller and they've also got one type of chain of proteins rather than two, which antibodies have. And the cool thing, well, there's lots of cool things with nanobodies, but one of the cool things is that they were discovered completely by accident. So there was a group of students in the US in the 1980s and they had to do an exam where they had to divide blood find the antibodies and then they had to divide them into the two types of chains so the the light chains and the heavy chains and this particular time um, HIV was quite high mm-hmm. uh, rates happening in the US at the time and so they didn't want to use human blood so their professor just gave them some camel blood from, from right. a, a study that he happened to be doing in camels and then failed them because they couldn't divide the antibodies into the different chains and it turns out that they were actually right there weren't you know <laughs> <laughs> Two types of Oops. chains. So note to everyone, if you fail an exam, you know, maybe you might have some arguments. <laughs> 20 years later. 20 years later, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so they actually, when they worked out this was real, they patented it. So they patented the idea of using these small nanobodies as a treatment for a whole range of diseases. So there's right. now three nanobody medical treatments available, one for a blood disease and a couple for cancers. Uh, they went out of patent in 2013, so of course... What that means for science is that the rate of science um, increases again as people have access. Uh, And so what they've found is that they can make these nanobodies in the lab. And so there's a couple of ways of doing that. They can be made synthetically. Mm -hmm. But what happens more often is they actually have a camel or a shark in a lab, which straight away makes me think of James Bond and a huge yeah, shark, shark tank. tank. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting how we see it made me think of shark spray in Batman. Yeah, there you go. Exactly, exactly. Different people. So exactly. If you were a villain and you wanted to save the world, then yeah. you could make nanobodies. Yeah. Um, and so what they do to, to actually generate these these compounds is that they um, vac- basically vaccinate the animal. Right. So they give the animal um, a, a, a treatment, um, or sorry, a, a foreign body into their body and then the nanobody are produced and then they can just take a blood sample from the shark or camel to collect those nanobodies to then use as a potential treatment. Wow. It's wild stuff. Absolutely amazing stuff. And so the potential uses for these are are really huge. So, again, bringing it back to the simple thing, these are immune molecules, so Mm -hmm. we can use them potentially to fight things like COVID-19, for example. Um, So the nanobodies are a lot more stable than antibodies, so they can be, for example, you can boil them uh, and they still survive. You know, you can have them in incredibly cold temperatures. You can have them stored for a lot longer, which is a a big challenge for for protein-based treatments. So they're a really resilient type of um, medication. And then they can potentially be used for other purposes purposes like imaging in the body so they could be used for pet scans for example and again it comes back to the fact that they are more resilient they're um, better at penetrating the tissues in our body than a a larger antibody and so it's quite amazing to think Mm. of this one type of molecule could be used for treatment imaging you know, COVID, cancer, the whole lot. It's it's interesting to me that, you know, like it's obviously been something kept by llamas, camels and sharks, mm-hmm. but hasn't seen that kind of distribution in other species. Yeah. Uh, and yet it sounds like it has so many advantages. There must be some downsides to the 
preventing it from being something that we all retained in yeah, some way. Yeah, absolutely. No, you absolutely assume so. Um, and so then, you know, obviously my, my spiral of reading continued mm. and um, I got very interested in, in my area of research, which is the eye, and yep. how do we use these nanobodies for the eye? And so it's very interesting technique. So one of the challenges in the eye is there's a protein called redopsin, which right. reacts to light. So it's basically when the light comes into your eye, the redopsin changes configuration and that starts the process of, of our vision. It activates okay. the retina, basically. Yep. Really, really hard to assess redopsin in a lab because as soon as you've got light on it, it changes configuration. Right. That's what it does. Right. So if you're trying to test it in an unactivated state, it's actually near impossible because you'd have to be doing it in complete blackness. And obviously, whenever you image something, you have to have light to right. image it. So really, really challenging situation. So this particular... Um, treatment or not treatment sorry this methodology would be to use a nanobody to actually block the the rhodopsin from changing shape so it kind of connects to the rhodopsin molecule the protein and it stops it from changing shape when the light hits it so that then means that scientists can then look at this protein in more detail work out why it is that it works in the way it does, and again, how we could maybe treat it so that it works more effectively in people that have certain eye diseases. Jeez, that's wild stuff. Oh, the second you talk about you know imaging, you can't do it in light. I'm thinking, did you try other frequencies? Did you try high speed <laughs> pulses? Did you try all that stuff? I'm assuming yes. Total physicist, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, absolutely, and that is how it's been done to date. Really, yeah, if we're doing yeah. those sorts of imaging. You have to use non visible light, right? Right. Um, but this opens up a lot more options. You know, if you you can actually so it's almost like you're putting it into a paused state mm. so if you can pause the action of it then you can learn more about how it actually works god it's wild stuff i love that that's really interesting thank you dr lauren good Pleasure. to be back so good to be back. i know it's and great. you know i'm a sucker for eye stories so yeah. <laughs> It's funny. Fascinating. I actually thought I'm like, I better not make this too eye-oriented, but yeah, you did. back to eyes. Yeah. Uh, that's good stuff. I think um, the eye is such a fascinating part of the body. And, and yeah. like when you look through the animal kingdom in general and you see how the range of things from lobsters to us. And you Absolutely. think, geez, so many different things there that we can learn from. Yep. Anyway, thank you so much. Pleasure. Folks, uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll have another big show for you again next week. Until then, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fabulous Sunday. Be kind, and we'll see you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.